3. Or crest of hair, in the course of the sagittal suture, which meets posteriorly with a transverse ridge of the same, but less prominent, running round from the back of one ear to the other. The animal has the power of moving the scalp freely forward and back, and when enraged is said to contract it strongly over the brow, thus bringing down the hairy ridge and plunging the hair forward, so as to present an indescribably ferocious aspect, neck short, thick, and hairy, chest and shoulders very broad, and said to be fully double the size of the Anchicos, arms very long, reaching some way below the knee the forearm much the shortest, hands very large, the thumbs much larger than the fingers. The gait is shuffling, the motion of the body, which is never upright as in man, but bent forward, is somewhat rolling, or from side to side, the arms being longer than the chimpanzee, it does not stoop as much in walking, like that animal, it makes progression by thrusting its arms forward, resting the hands on the ground, and then giving the body a half jumping, half swinging motion between them, in this act it is said not to flex the fingers, as does the chimpanzee, resting on its knuckles but to extend them, making a fulcrum of the hand, when it assumes the walking posture, to which it is said to be much inclined, it balances its huge body by flexing its arms upward, they live in bands, but are not so numerous as the chimpanzees, the females generally exceed the other sex in number, my informants all agree in the assertion that but one adult male is seen in a band, that where the young males grow up a contest takes place for mastery, and the strongest, by killing and driving out the others, establishes himself as the head of the community. Dr. Savage repudiates the stories about the gorillas carrying off women and vanquishing elephants, and then adds, their dwellings, if they may be so called, are similar to those of the chimpanzee, consisting simply of a few sticks and leafy branches, supported by the crow's nests and limbs of trees, they afford no shelter, and are occupied only at night. They are exceedingly ferocious, and always offensive in their habits, never running from man as does the chimpanzee, they are objects of terror to the natives, and are never encountered by them except on the defensive, the few that have been captured were killed by elephant hunters and native traders, as they came suddenly upon them while passing through the forests, it is said that when the male is first seen he gives a terrific yell, that resounds far and wide through the forest, something like k-shot, k-shot, prolonged and shrill, his enormous jaws are widely opened at each expiration, his underlip hangs over the chin, and the hairy ridge and scalp are contracted upon the brow, presenting an aspect of indescribable ferocity. The females and young, at the first cry, quickly disappear. He then approaches the enemy in great fury, pouring out his horrid cries in quick succession. The hunter awaits his approach with his gun extended, if his aim is not sure he permits the animal to grasp the barrel, and as he carries it to his mouth which is his habit he fires, should the gun fail to go off. The barrel that of the ordinary musket, which is thin, is crashed between his teeth and the encounter soon proves fatal to the hunter. In the wild state their habits are in general like those of the troglodytes Niger, building their nests loosely in trees, living on similar fruits, and changing their place of resort from force of circumstances. Dr. Savage's observations were confirmed and supplemented by those of Mr. Ford, who communicated an interesting paper on the gorilla to the Philadelphian Academy of Sciences in 1852, with respect to the geographical distribution of this greatest of all the man-like apes, Mr. Ford remarks, this animal inhabits the range of mountains that traverse the interior of Guinea from the Cameroon in the north to Angola in the south, and about 100 miles inland, and called by the geographers Crystal Mountains, 
the limit to which this animal extends, either north or south, I am unable to define, but that limit is doubtless some distance north of this river Gaboon. I was able to certify myself of this fact in a late excursion to the headwaters of the Mooney Danger River, which comes into the sea some sixty miles from this place. I was informed credibly, I think, that they were numerous among the mountains in which that river rises, and far north of that, in the south, this species extends to the Congo River, as I am told by native traders who had visited the coast, between the Gaboon and that river, beyond that, I am not informed. This animal is only found at a distance from the coast in most cases, and, according to my best information, approaches it nowhere so nearly as on the south side of this river, where they have been found within ten miles of the sea. This, however, is only of late occurrence. I am informed by some of the oldest Mpongwe men that formerly he was only found on the sources of the river, but that at present he may be found within half a day's walk of its mouth. Formerly he inhabited the mountainous ridge where bushmen alone inhabited, but now he boldly approaches the Mpongwe plantations. This is doubtless the reason of the scarcity of information in years past, as the opportunities for receiving a knowledge of the animal had not been wanting, traders having for 100 years frequented this river, and specimens, such as have been brought here within a year, could not have been exhibited without having attracted the attention of the most stupid. One specimen Mr. Ford examined weighed 170 pounds, without the thoracic or pelvic viscera, and measured 4 feet 4 inches round the chest. This writer describes so minutely and graphically the onslaught of the gorilla though he does not for a moment pretend to have witnessed the scene that I am tempted to give this part of his paper in full. For comparison with other narratives, he always rises to his feet when making an attack, though he approaches his antagonist in a stooping posture though he never lies in wait, yet, when he hears, sees, or scents a man, he immediately utters his characteristic cry, prepares for an attack, and always acts on the offensive, the cry he utters resembles a grunt more than a growl, and is similar to the cry of the chimpanzee when irritated, but vastly louder, it is said to be audible at a great distance, his preparation consists in attending the females and young ones, by whom he is usually accompanied, to a little distance, he, however, soon returns with his crest erect and projecting forward, his nostrils dilated, and his under lip thrown down, at the same time uttering his characteristic yell, designed, it would seem, to terrify his antagonist, instantly, unless he is disabled by a well-directed shot, he makes an onset, and, striking his antagonist with the palm of his hands, or seizing him with a grasp from which there is no escape, he dashes him upon the ground, and lacerates him with his tusks, he is said to seize a musket, and instantly crush the barrel between his teeth, this animal's savage nature is very well shown by the implacable desperation of a young one that was brought here, it was taken very young, and kept for months, and many means were used to tame it, but it was incorrigible, so that it bit me an hour before it died, some strange nurseries from nature's workshop, my grand Allen, you could hardly find a better rough test of relative development in the animal or vegetable world than the number of young produced and the care bestowed upon them. The fewer the offspring, the higher the type. Very low animals turn out thousands of eggs with reckless profusion, but they let them look after themselves, or be devoured by enemies, as chance will have it. The higher you go in the scale of being, the smaller the families, but the greater amount of pains expended upon the rearing and upbringing of the young. Large broods mean low organization, small broods imply higher types and more care in the nurture and education of the offspring. 
primitive kinds produce eggs wholesale, on the off chance that some two or three among them may perhaps survive an infant mortality of 99%, so as to replace their parents, advanced kinds produce half a dozen young, or less, but bring a large proportion of these on an average up to years of discretion, without taking into account insects and such other, small deer, to quote Shakespeare's expression. This fundamental principle of population will become at once apparent if we examine merely familiar instances of backboned or vertebrate animals. The lowest vertebrates are clearly the fishes, and the true fishes have almost invariably gigantic families. A single cob, for example, is said to produce, roughly speaking, 9 million eggs at a birth. I cannot pretend I have checked this calculation, but supposing they were only a million, and that one-tenth of those eggs alone ever came to maturity. There would still be a hundred thousand codfish in the sea this year for every pair that swam in it last year, and these would increase to a hundred thousand times that number next year, and so on, till in four or five years' time the whole sea would be but one solid mass of closely packed cob banks. We can see for ourselves that nothing of the sort actually occurs practically speaking. There are about the same number of cod one year as another, in spite of this enormous birth rate. Therefore, the cob population is not increasing it is at a standstill. What does that imply? Why? That taking one brood and one year with another, only a pair of cob, roughly speaking, survive to maturity out of each eight or nine million eggs. The mother cob lays its millions, in order that two may arrive at the period of spawning. All the rest get devoured as eggs, or snapped up as young fry, or else die of starvation, or are otherwise unaccounted for. It seems to us a wasteful way of replenishing the earth, but it is nature's way, we can only bow respectfully to her final decision. Frogs and other amphibians stand higher in the scale of life than fish, they have acquired legs in place of fins, and lungs instead of gills, they can hop about on shore with perfect freedom. Now, frogs still produce a great deal of spawn, as everyone knows, but the eggs in each brood are numbered in their case by hundreds, or at most by a thousand or two. Not by millions as with many fishes, the spawn hatches out as a rule in ponds, and we have all seen the little black tadpoles crowding the edges of the water in such innumerable masses that one would suppose the frogs to be developed from them must cover the length and breadth of England. Yet what becomes of them all? Hundreds are destroyed in the early tadpole stage eaten up or starved, or crowded out for want of air and space and water, a few alone survive or develop four legs and absorb their tails and hop on shore as tiny froglings. Even then the massacre of the innocents continues. Only a tide of those which succeeded in quitting their native pond ever return to it full-grown, to spawn in due time, and become the parents of further generations. Lizards and other reptiles make an obvious advance on the frog type. They lay relatively few eggs, but they begin to care for their young. The family is not here abandoned at birth, as among frogs but is frequently tended and fed and overlooked by the mother. In birds we have a still higher development of the same marked parental tendency, only three or four eggs are laid each year, as a rule, and on these eggs the mother sits, while both parents feed the callow nestlings till such time as they are able to take care of themselves and pick up their own living. Among mammals, which stand undoubtedly at the head of created nature, the lower types, like mice and rabbits, have frequent broods of many young at a time, but the more advanced groups, such as the horses, cows, deer, and elephants, have usually one foal or calf at a birth, and seldom produce more than a couple. Moreover, in all these higher cases alike, the young are fed with milk by the mother, 
and so spared the trouble of providing for themselves in their early days, like the young cobfish or the baby tadpole. Starvation at the outset is reduced to a minimum. It is interesting to note, too, that anticipations of higher types, so to speak, often occur among lower races. An animal here and there among the simpler forms hits upon some device essentially similar to that of some higher group with which it is really quite unrelated. For example, those who have read my account of the common earwig given in the sixth chapter of Flashlights on Nature will recollect how that lowly insect sits on her eggs much as a hen does, and brings up her brood of callow grubs as if they were chickens, in much the same way. Anticipations of the mammalian type occur pretty frequently among lower animals. Our commonest English lizard, for example, which frequents moors and sandhills, does not lay or deposit its eggs at all, but hatches them out in its own body, and so apparently brings them forth alive, while among snakes, the same habit occurs in the adder or the ipeer. The very name the ipeer, indeed, is a corruption of vivipra, the snake which produces living young. Still more closely do some birds resemble mammals in the habit of secreting a sort of milk for the sustenance of their nestlings. Most people think the phrase, pigeon's milk, is much like the phrase, the horse marines, a burlesque name for an absurd and impossible monstrosity, but it is nothing of the sort, it answers to a real fact in the economy of certain doves, which eat grain or seeds, grind and digest it in their own gizzards into a fine soft pulp or porridge, and then feed their young with it from their crops and beaks, this is thus a sort of bird-like imitation of milk, only the cow or the goat takes grass or leaves, chews, swallows, and digests them, and manufactures from them in her own body that much more nutritive substance, milk, with which all mammals feed their infant offspring. Now, after this rather long preamble, I am going to show you in this present article a few other examples of special care taken of the young in certain quarters where it might be least expected. Fish are not creatures from which we look for marked domestic virtues, yet we may find them there abundantly. Let us begin with that familiar friend of our childhood. The common English stickleback, which of us cannot look back in youth to the mysteries of the stickleback fisheries. Captains courageous, we sailed forth with bent pin and piece of thread, to woo the wily quarry with half an inch of chopped earthworm. For stickleback abound in every running stream and pond in England. They are beautiful little creatures, too. When you come to examine them, great favorites in the freshwater aquarium, the male in particular is exquisitely colored his hues growing brighter and his sheen more conspicuous at the pairing season. There are many species of sticklebacks in England we have three very different kinds but all are alike in one point which gives them their common name, that is to say, in their aggressive and protective prickliness, they are armed against all comers. The dorsal fin is partly replaced in the whole family by strong spines or stickles, which differ in number in the different species. One of our English sorts is a lover of salt water, he lives in the sea especially off the Cornish coast, and has 15 stickles or spines, on which account he is commonly known as the 15 spine stickleback, our other two sorts belong to fresher waters, and are known as the 10 spine and the 3 spine respectively, the special peculiarity of the male stickleback consists in the fact that the island above all things, a model father, in his acute sense of parental responsibility he has few equals, when spring comes round, he first exhibits his consciousness of his coming charge by suddenly enduing himself in a glowing coat of many colors and of iridescent brilliancy, that is in order to charm the eyes of the prospective mate, or rather mates, for I may as well confess the sad truth at once that our amiable friend is a good parent but an abandoned polygamist, 
We all know that, in the spring the fuller crimson comes upon the robin's breast, in the spring the wanton lapling gets himself another crest, in the spring the livelier iris changes on the burnished dove, in the spring the young man's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of love, not to be out of the fashion, therefore, the romantic stickleback does precisely the same thing as all these distinguished and poetical compeers, and he does it for the same reason, too, because he wants to get himself an appropriate partner. There is a great deal of human nature in man, it has been said, I am always inclined to add, and there is a great deal of human nature in plants and animals. The more we know of our dumb relations, the more closely do we realize the kinship between us. Fish in the spring are like young men at a fair all eager for the attention of their prospective partners. The first care of the male stickleback, when he has acquired his courting suit, is to build a suitable home for his future wives and children. So he picks up stems of grass and water weeds with his mouth, and weaves them deftly into a compact nest as perfect as a bird's, though somewhat different in shape and pattern. It rather resembles a barrel, open at both ends, as though the bottom were knocked out. This form is rendered necessary because the eggs, when laid, have to be constantly aerated by passing a current of water through the nest as I shall describe hereafter. Number one shows us such a nest when completed with the female stickleback loitering about and decided as to whether or not she shall plunge and enter it. You will observe that the fabric is woven round a fixed support of some waving water weeds, but the cunning little architect does not trust in this matter to his textile skill alone, he cements the straws and other materials together with a gummy mortar of mucus threads secreted for the purpose by his internal organs. As soon as the building operations are fully completed, The eager little householder sallies forth into his pond or brook in search of a mate who will come and stock his neatly built home for him. At this stage of the proceedings, his wedding garment becomes even more brilliant and glancing than ever, he gleams in silver and changeful gems, when he finds his lady love, he dances round her, mad with excitement, as Darwin well phrased it, looking his handsomest and best with his lustrous colors glistening like an opal, if she will listen to his suit, he grows wild with delight and coaxes her into the nest with most affectionate endearments. In number two, as you perceive, the mate of his choice has been induced to enter, and is laying her eggs in the dainty home his care has provided for her. The father fish, meanwhile dances and capers around, in a pond triumphy at the success of his endeavors. One wife, however, does not suffice to fill the nest with eggs, and the stickleback is a firm believer in the advantages of large families. So, As soon as his first mate has laid all her spawn, he sets out once more in search of another. Thus he goes on until the home is quite full of eggs, bringing back one wife after another, in proportion to his success in wooing and fighting. For, like almost all polygamists, your stickleback is a terrible fighter. The males join wager a battle with one another for possession of their mates. In their fierce duels they make fearful use of the formidable spines on their backs sometimes entirely ripping up and cutting to pieces their ill-fated adversary. The spines thus answer to the spurs of the gamecock or the antlers of the deer, they are masculine weapons in the struggle for mates. Indeed, you may take it for granted that brilliant colors and decorative adjuncts in animals almost invariably go with irascible tempers, pugnacious habits, and the practice of fighting for the possession of the harem, the consequence island with the sticklebacks, that many males get killed during the struggle for supremacy so that the survivors wed half a dozen wives each, like little Turks that they are in their watery seraglios. Only the most beautiful and courageous fish succeed in gaining a harem of their own, and thus the wager of battle tells in the end for the advantage of the race. 
by eliminating the maimed, the ugly, and the cowardly, and encouraging the strong, the handsome, the enterprising, and the valiant. This is nature's way of preventing degeneracy. In number three the nest is seen full of eggs, and the excellent father now comes out in his best light as their guardian and protector. He watches over them with ceaseless care, freeing them from parasites, and warding off the attacks of would-be enemies who desire to devour them. Even though the intruder be several times his own size, the spines on his back here stand him once more in good stead, for small as the island the stickleback is not an antagonist to be lightly despised, he can inflict a wound which a perch or a trout knows how to estimate at its full value, but that is not all the good parent's duty. He takes the eggs out of the nest every now and then with his snout, airs them a little in the fresh water outside, and then replaces and rearranges them, so that all may get a fair share of oxygen and may hatch out about simultaneously. It is this question of oxygen, indeed, which gives the father fish all the greatest trouble. That necessary of life is dissolved in water in very small quantities, and it is absolutely needed by every egg in order to enable it to undergo those vital changes which we know as hatching to keep up a due supply of oxygen. Therefore, the father stickleback and grudgingly devotes laborious days in poising himself delicately just above the nest, as you see in number three, and fanning the eggs with his fins and tail, so as to set up a constant current of water through the center of the barrel. He sits upon the eggs just as truly as a hen does, only, he sits upon them, not for warmth, but for aeration. For weeks together this exemplary parent continues his monotonous task ventilating the spawn many times every day, till the time comes for hatching. It takes about a month for the eggs to develop, and then the proud father's position grows more arduous than ever. He has to rock a thousand cradles at once, so to speak, and to pacify a thousand crying babies. On the one hand, enemies hover about, trying to eat the tender transparent glass like little fry, and these he must drive off. On the other hand, the good nurse must take care that the active young fish do not stray far from the nest, and so expose themselves prematurely to the manifold dangers of the outer world, till they are big enough to take care of themselves. He watches with incessant vigilance over their safety, as soon as they can go forth with tolerable security upon the world of their brook or pond. He takes a last well-merited holiday. It is not surprising under these circumstances to learn that sticklebacks are successful and increasing animals. Their numbers are enormous, wherever they get a fair chance in life, because they multiply rapidly up to the extreme limit of the means of subsistence, and develop as fast as food remains for them. There the inexorable Malthusian law at last steps in, when there is not food enough for all some must starve, that is the long and the short of the great population question. But while provender is forthcoming they increase gaily. Sticklebacks live mainly on the spawn of other fish, though they are so careful of their own and they are therefore naturally hated by trout preservers and owners of fisheries in general. Thousands and thousands are caught each year, in some places. Indeed, they are so numerous that they are used as manure. It is their numbers, of course, that make them formidable. They are the locusts of the streams, well-wormed and pugnacious, and provided with most remarkable parental instincts of a protective character, which enables them to fill up all vacancies in their ranks as fast as they occur with astonishing promptitude. To those whose acquaintance with fish is mainly culinary, it may seem odd to hear that the father stickleback alone takes part in the care of the nursery, but this is the rule among the whole class of fish, wherever the young are tended, it is almost always the father, not the mother, who undertakes the duty of incubation, 
only two instances occur where the female fish assumes maternal functions towards her young, about these I shall have more to say a little later on. We must remember that reptiles, birds, and mammals are in all probability descended from fish as ancestors, and it is therefore clear that the habit of handing over the care of the young to the female alone belongs to the higher grades of vertebrates in other words, is of later origin. We need not be astonished, therefore, to find that in many cases among birds and other advanced vertebrates a partial reversion to the earlier habit not infrequently takes place. With doves, for example, the cock and hen birds sit equally on the eggs, taking turns about at the nest, and as for the ostriches, the male bird there does most of the incubation, for he accepts the whole of the night duty, and also assists at intervals during the daytime. There are numerous other cases where the father bird shares the tasks of the nursery at least equally with the mother. I will glance first, however, at one of the rare exceptions among fish where the main duty does not devolve on the devoted father. In number 4 we have an illustration of the tube mouth or solenostoma, one of the two known kinds of fish in which the female shows a sense of her position as a mother. The tube mouth, as you can see at a glance, is a close relation of our old friend the seahorse whose disguised and indisguised forms in Australia and the Mediterranean we have already observed when dealing with the question of animal masqueraders. Solenostoma is a native of the Indian Ocean, from Zanzibar to China. In the male, the lower pair of fins are separate, as is usual among fish, but in the female, represented in the accompanying sketch, they are lightly joined at the edge, so as to form a sort of pouch like a kangaroo's, in which the eggs are deposited after being laid and thus carried about in the mother's safekeeping. Number 5 shows the arrangement of the spouch in detail, with the eggs inside it. The mother solenostoma not only takes charge of the spawn while it is hatching in this receptacle, but also looks after the young fry, like the father's tickleback, till they are of an age to go off on their own account in quest of adventures. The most frequent adventure that happens to them on the way island of course, being eaten. The common English pipe fish is a good example of the other and much more usual case in which the father alone is actuated by a proper sense of parental responsibility. The pipe fish, indeed, might almost be described as a pure and blameless right there. Number 6 shows you the outer form of this familiar creature, whom you will recognize at a glance as still more nearly allied to the seahorses than even the tube mouth. Pipe fishes are timid and skulking creatures, like their horse-headed relations. They lurk for the most part among seaweed for protection, and being but poor swimmers, never venture far from the covering shelter of their native thicket. But the curious part of them is that in this family the father fish is provided with a pouch even more perfect than that of the female tube mouth, and that he himself, not his mate takes sole charge of the young, incubates them in his sack, and escorts them about for some time after hatching. The pouch, which is more fully represented in number 7, is formed by a loose fold of skin arising from either side of the creature. In the illustration this fold is partly withdrawn, so as to show the young pipe fish within their safe retreat after hatching out. It is said, I know not how truly, that the young fry will stroll out for an occasional swim on their own account, but will return at any threat of danger to their father's bosom, for a considerable time after the first hatching. This is just like what one knows of kangaroos and many other pouched mammals where the mother's pouch becomes a sort of nursery, or place of refuge, to which the little ones return for warmth or safety after every excursion. The seahorses and many other fish have similar pouches, but, oddly enough, in every case it is the male fish which bears it, and which undertakes the arduous duty of nurse for his infant offspring. A few female fish, 
on the other hand, even hatch the eggs within their own bodies, and so apparently bring forth their young alive, like the English lizard among reptiles. This, however, is far from a common case, indeed, in an immense number of instances, neither parent pays the slightest attention to the eggs after they are once laid and got rid of, the spawn is left to lie on the bottom and be eaten or spared as chance directs, while the young pride have to take care of themselves, without the aid of parental advice and education, but exceptions occur where both parents show signs of realizing the responsibilities of their position, in some little South American river fish, for instance, the father and mother together build a nest of dead leaves for the spawn, and watch over it in unison until the young are hatched. This case is exactly analogous to that of the doves among birds, I may add that wherever such instances occur they always seem to be accompanied by a markedly gentle and affectionate nature. Brilliantly colored fighting polygamous fishes are fierce and cruel, monogamous and faithful animals are seldom bright-hued, but they mate for life and are usually remarkable for their domestic felicity. The doves and love birds are familiar instances. Frogs are very closely allied to fish, indeed. One may almost say that every frog begins life as a fish, limbless, gill-bearing, and aquatic, and ends it as something very like a reptile, four-legged, lung-bearing, and more or less terrestrial, for the tadpole is practically in all essentials a fish. It is not odd, therefore, to find that certain frogs reproduce, in a very marked manner, the fatherly traits of their fish-like ancestors. There is a common kind of frog in France, Belgium, and Switzerland which does not extend to England, but which closely recalls the habits of the stickleback and the pipefish. Among these eminently moral amphibians, it is the father, not the mother, who takes entire charge of the family. The female lays her spawn in the shape of long strings or rolls, looking at first sight like slimy necklaces. I have seen them as much as a couple of yards long, lying loose on the grass where the frog lays them. As soon as